0: Welcome to this edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery, brought to you by Spiritualteachers.org. I'm your host, Sean Nevins. Hello, and welcome again to this month's edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery. I've got two short announcements before we get started. First, I want to let you know that TAT's November virtual retreat is now open for registration. Go to tatfoundation.org and you'll see a banner for the event. The theme is the relative and the absolute, and as usual, there'll be a mix of small group workshops, panel discussions, talks, and this time there'll be some interviews, As always, it's a sincere and potentially life-changing weekend that I recommend every time it comes around. I'm also happy to announce that Art Tickner, who's my guest this month, has a new book. It's called Sense of Self, and it's available on Amazon or through the bookseller of your choice. This is Art's third book, and it offers a sampling of bite-sized essays, discussions with seekers, and thought-provoking aphorisms. I highly recommend it, especially as a great pairing with this month's interview with Art. And as always, Art offers up a profound and thoughtful commentary on the spiritual path. I have video available this month as well, so if you're watching this on YouTube, yes, there'll be video in just a moment. And if you'd like to check that out, you can get the link on the podcast page. Just go to spiritualteachers.org and look for the link to the podcast. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy.
1: Why, Art? It's good to see you, and thanks for agreeing to do this interview.
2: This is breaking my long tradition of wanting to avoid Zoom at all possible costs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, it, I do appreciate the significance of this. I think you should. I do because Uh, uh, you've been at the last two or three TAT Foundation events uh, without video. You've dialed into those on the phone. It was like a
2: ghostly presence there. Mm -hmm. Uh
1: So, you know, again, thank you for thank you for doing this. Uh, You and I talked briefly before we started recording. Uh, that it had been uh, that you've done an interview on Conscious TV in 2012, and I definitely want to point people towards that interview to get more of the story of your enlightenment, um, the story of your search. Uh, Ian did a really nice job on that interview. Yeah, he did an
2: excellent job.
1: And then, uh, and then I'll also point people towards uh, the film Closer Than Close. Where mm-hmm. there's a segment where uh, I and friend interviewed you uh, that dates back to 2006, I think. So it's been a while, and and I was really hoping to uh, explore and see if anything's new with you over the past mm-hmm. uh, eight years since that Conscious TV interview, uh, and and perhaps delve a little deeper into some things that we've touched upon. In that interview.
2: I think I've definitely mallowed in that time, Sean. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, I'll use that as a as a segue oh. uh, into into a question about uh, confrontation
3: uh-huh.
1: and and confrontation, uh, which sometimes people refer to as group inquiry or group self inquiry. Mm -hmm. Whatever your name comes up in a conversation among the TAP Foundation folks, uh, it's generally connected to confrontation and how you are uh, considered a master of confrontation or a masterful at confrontation. I've had a lot of practice. And uh, yeah, I, I wanted to first just clarify for people who aren't familiar with the term what is confrontation?
2: So can I tell a little bit of story about you? Absolutely. Okay. I remember a time when we had a confrontation session going on at a TAP meeting back on the Richard Rose farm. And after that meeting, I got a note from you in the mail saying it's not right to confront somebody who's depressed (laughs) do you remember that
0: i don't remember that
2: (laughs) and so i think i've made that mistake more than once (laughs) and so i so to me i get enthusiastic about asking people questions and getting their responses you know it's like a it's something i'm really i'm just curious about other people's mentalities and i'd like to do it but i i get I, i get wound up you know and People lots of times think I'm angry or something like that. It's not that. I just get excited about doing it. So mm-hmm. but, uh, that that uh, probably that hasn't changed much in people. So I'm still, I'm still excited about it. When, when So like when people will mesh gears with me, I could just keep on indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So, so but basically. So, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, oh, I was going to say, you know, you asked me about uh, what is confrontation. And to me, it's basically what, what I encourage people to do is either talk about their complaints or talk about what's on their mind that the mind is chewing on trying to what's some problem is trying to solve. And, and to me, that gives a lot of clues about uh, possible questions that could help somebody get more mental clarity, what's going on with them, with themselves.
1: So, um, so, uh, you know, things that a person, uh, not that this would have ever happened to me, of course, but a person might chew on (laughs) what somebody said about them during the day. Sure. uh, Yeah. Maybe that comment hurt or they wish that they responded Mm -hmm. differently to that comment. Uh, Is that, in one sense, I I might say, well, that's not a particularly spiritual question. Yeah. So I ask about who I am. Is that a legitimate uh, topic for confrontation?
2: Yeah. So one of my big, so I think in general, the women I've worked with are more uh, specific about their complaints and their problems and things like that. Whereas the guys tend to be more abstract. And I think it's much easier if somebody gets down into details about what's going on in, in their own mind. It, it's easier to help those people get some more clarity on what's going on. So, yeah, I think, yeah, so things like psychological complaints and stuff like that, I think that's all valid material to work with. And
1: And the point of working with that sort of material is – I mean, in one sense, I see that if I if I see what's at the root of my irritations with other people, let's say,
3: mm-hmm. that
1: uh, perhaps frees me a little bit from external influence. But beyond that, is there a point to delving into that kind of psychological material?
2: Yeah. So, based on my experience, uh, what what hangs us up from knowing the truth about what we are? Well and why would anybody want to know the truth about what they are right so I always have to keep backing up until I get to some starting point but so uh what when I met Richard Rose I'd been going through a period for uh, maybe half a dozen years of having the conviction that I had enough of everything that I should should have been happy but there was something missing and I didn't have a clue what it was i I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know where to look for it, but everything I could conceive of, I would think, no, I know that isn't going to do it. No, I know that isn't going to do it. And, and, what, and the, this, this uh, process would hit me strongly, maybe a couple of times a year. And what I talked, the way I talked to myself about it is that it was an identity crisis. Although that, to me in retrospect, I don't know how I knew that because <laughs> I didn't know I was looking for my identity but so uh that the from my experience uh what what the the problem of not knowing ourselves is that we have a lot of beliefs about what we are, and the beliefs are the cause of existential suffering, so the belief that I'm a person that i I'm something that was born and is going to die, and just those basic beliefs that everybody has, you know i mean how, how do you get uh, to be an adult without uh, adopting those beliefs, but uh, they're based on not knowing the truth about what we are and and so yeah you know, all the all the confrontational questioning to me, even though we may have to start and work in a psychological mode for a long time, is trying to get at beliefs that we have about what we are that may, may not be the truth uh
1: have you have you found that people? Do in confrontation that people do get to questions of perhaps more subtle questions or deeper questions of identity and what really is the self or what is permanent about the self? Do people get to that point?
2: Well, the people that I work with, I try to get them to the point where they uh, don't have any solid ground to stand on. And so it's not a question of trying to get somebody to get a better belief about what they are. It's a, a question of trying to get them to realize they don't know it for sure what they are. Anything that they uh, believe is going to be half the truth at best. Well, that sounds like. like yeah. Go ahead.
1: Oh, well, I was just going to say that sounds like kind of a precarious position to put someone <laughs> yeah. in. Yeah. Especially if they're depressed.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, uh, you know, I'm teasing you a little bit, but I guess I guess what you're you're getting back to, are you getting back to doubt and the power of doubt or the importance yes. of doubt?
2: Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a is a question that somebody posed for the Tat Forum Reader Commentary for the coming month, and it was about uh, belief in God and stuff like that, and, and religion and belief in God or divine presence or something. And, uh, yeah, to me, uh, religions that uh, are based on trying to help somebody accept the truth about statements that are made are not... Particularly helpful for somebody who really wants to know what they are, and to me, what uh, Richard Rose was talking about and and what a lot of uh, the folks in tat, especially those of us who had uh, spent time around Rose is we we it, we see the value of you could say respectful doubt that it uh, it's almost a religion of doubt as opposed to religion of belief. So de- definitely, that's what I'm. I'm working with people to try to encourage them to. But it's is not just it's not like uh, trying to back them into a hopeless corner. So it's a question of trying to encourage people to get at a feeling level, but not just emotional feeling, but intuition. Is to get their intuition to work on the problem of what they truly are. And, and, you know, I think one way to look at it is everybody is trying to survive. And so survival is uh, what, what's, what, what's going to happen when we die, you know, is that the end of things? So the, the, one of the big selling points of the enlightenment is, you know, the truth about what you are and, and, What I found out, and I I think this is fairly common in people who've uh, claimed to have found an answer about what they are, is that we find that what we are is not vulnerable in any sense. And so I, I tell that to people, but then, you know, almost everybody is convinced, oh, I'm affected by what I experience. And so... Uh, by, by telling them, well, you know, I'm not. I know that what I am is not affected by what I experience. It gives them possibly, uh, you know, a way to start doubting their own beliefs a little bit.
1: And since you've been, uh, you've been doing confrontation, leading confrontation with groups of people since at least the 19. 19- 90s?
2: The Middle Ages. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I think uh, the Pittsburgh group got started about 91, maybe something like that. Does that sound right? No, 97, I think, is when the Pittsburgh group got started. I mean, we did confrontation at the TAP meetings.
1: And so, uh, and you do it today. So clearly, this is something yeah. that you believe is powerful. And helpful.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think, you know, one, actually, one of the the advantages like with the email confrontation groups where we have weekly exchanges, I think that if nothing else, it helps a person keep focused or, you know, renewing focus on a fairly regular basis. You and I used to talk about with the tap meetings four times a year, a lot of the times that people would come to the tap meetings, it was like they were back to the, the right. previous three months or whatever it had been. You know, yeah. yeah. And so I think just that regular, any kind of a regular irritation or inspiration helps a person keep their head on the problem.
1: And that's the and that's the value of it being a group. <clears throat> if someone out yes. there right now said oh you know that sounds kind of interesting uh would you mm-hmm. recommend that they try to start something on their own could they start something on their oh, own Oh, big time
2: yeah sure i encourage especially once once we know somebody a little bit i i definitely encourage them to try to get something going on their own local group and now it's a little easier in some ways because people are doing zoom groups and they don't have to find people locally necessarily
1: and is it possible for you to give uh, like two or three key pieces of advice or things to keep in mind? If somebody said, uh, you know, yeah, I would like to start a group like that. How how would I go about it?
2: Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the common... Uh response I get from somebody is, oh, I don't have anything to teach and blah, 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 you know, right. And and so, yeah, I try to encourage them. It's not a question that they do have something to teach. And that's any convictions that they have. So it's not a question of trying to get somebody to believe them, but they can, they can, they can say, look, I've been look looking into this for a while and I have a conviction of X, Y, or Z. And so I think they do have something to, to get across. And it's so their conviction that there's some worthwhile uh, activity that can occur is important. Yeah, but then the other thing is, I say, well, it's not. It it. So Rose used to talk about uh, what was it? Idiots, not idiots, but uh, something anonymous. Uh, ignoramus. Uh, I forget. <laughs> yeah, ignoramus is anonymous, wasn't that it? So yeah, it's not. You don't want to put yourself in a position of preaching stuff that you don't know. So it's not trying to sell beliefs, but it's trying to get together with other people and doing the work together of exploring their own mentalities.
1: Uh, In in, in my little bit of experience running groups like that, uh, one of the biggest challenges is people telling stories uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and kind of, uh, and also secret, uh, secretly or subtly giving advice. Those are the
3: yeah. two things that I have. So seen I, right I have,
2: <laughs> I have a long trail of people who've left meetings with me, uh, being disgruntled because I I would just you know if people were going off, and I, I'd encourage them to take a look at what's where where the focus is in a meeting. So if they're trying to get attention, then then I just point that out to them. If they're uh, telling stories rather than asking questions of the other people, I point that out to them. And I say, you know, that's that's fine from a friendship standpoint, but what we're trying to do here has has a serious point. It's actually life and death serious. And so, uh, and some people take it okay. Some Sometimes I just say, look, uh, I don't think you, understand what we're trying to accomplish here and would you just listen for a while instead of talk. And so that that goes both ways. Sometimes they just get up and leave and other times then they, they go along with it, you know. So yeah, but the the management of the meetings I I just uh try to really avoid all all the un unhelpful unproductive activity that goes on.
1: And do you usually uh, do you usually give people a question, or do you also leave it open, as in what's what's on your mind?
2: Yeah, I so I've changed over the years. It used to be that I'd have a question, I'd uh, consider ahead of time. Now, what are the different ways people can respond to this question, and I'd have follow-up questions and stuff like that. But I in in uh, recent years, I'm I'm more to sometimes I'll have a little spiel that I'll do for a couple minutes, you know, on something, and uh, then I'll say, "Well, if you'd like to talk about this topic or theme or whatever, that's fine. I think it's better if you talk about whatever's been on your mind." And so I, you know, take take a little bit of both. If if people
1: want to, can they reach out to you for advice? In terms of uh, running a, a confrontation group, is that something that you?
2: Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And you know, and I can put them in touch with other people who are doing confrontation groups in different places around the country and around in Europe and places like that. You know, we've been been had some exposure to what we're doing, and yeah, so they can, they can actually find a some some other people who are in the same boat they are trying to things going. Yeah, I I think
1: that's an interesting point and perhaps something unique about confrontation groups that I'm aware of is that they don't center around the teacher necessarily. So it's not right. as if, oh I I gotta get an arts confrontation group.
2: Yeah. Um, have, I, 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 I often tell people, you know, the confrontation groups are better without a know it all.
3: Hmm.
2: Because then, yeah, so there's a big tendency, isn't there, for if if you're around somebody that you think has the goods, then you want to try to somehow adopt their views and whatever. Yeah. yeah. I think think there's a definite advantage to having the groups without any teacher.
1: And there have, now that I think about it, there have been, I don't know if there were confrontation groups per se, but there have been groups of people who, within the TAT sphere who were meeting Mm -hmm. and individuals from those groups have had awakenings, right? Mm
2: -hmm. Yes.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for delving into that, uh, (laughs) that a little bit. It's something that I, that I've, I've thought in a sense that kind of group confrontation didn't play a particularly strong role for me in my search yes um yeah. perhaps because of that comment that i gave you many years ago about <laughs> <laughs> don't
0: don't confront me i'm too depressed
3: <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> i'm i'm confronting myself enough right now <laughs> i don't need any more doubt <laughs>
3: Yeah, <laughs>
1: but uh but you know i have looked from a distance and been in i've been impressed obviously i do think that there's a lot of value there for people to explore mm-hmm.
3: um
1: kind of uh kind of a, a along the lines of I, I think you mentioned mortality or immortality um, yeah and you know i'm just curious if If you want to talk about this at all, but I mean, you are, you're getting older and (laughs) and has your view of, of what happens after death or I'm just, I'm kind of fishing around just to get a sense of, as you're getting older, do you feel closer to uh, that, that, Perhaps a daily feeling of of a, of awakening or enlightenment, or maybe maybe I'm asking: Does the veil of Maya seem thinner as the years go by? Maybe that's a more elegant way to ask it.
2: Well, what what I this is sort of uh may not be a direct answer, but I'll, I'll get started with this anyway. So what what i notice is that i have no i feel no need to check back to my source very often and, and the only time i find that happening is every once in a while somebody will ask me a question and i'll just get the feeling i don't want to give them an off-the-cuff answer i want to touch back and, and see what comes out and so I, I so I remember one time somebody asked Rose whether uh what, what he was was close all the time, and he said no it it's closer at some times and further away at other times yeah i so i don't I don't have any need to ask myself about that, and so the only time I find that happening is when some you know when there's a question of somebody. Uh, asks me about it it probably doesn't happen more than a couple times a year so in terms of I I had no feeling about whether so I I look around from uh, where I am there are 50,000 people in this area I heard a rumor there's like I don't know what 7 billion people on the planet now (laughs) I haven't seen all of them yet but you know uh i don't think that manifestation is liable to stop at any point although it could but so i i figured gee there's i i don't know how i got here this time so i don't think that reincarnation is any more possible than incarnation <laughs> so I, I have no clue whether i'm going to be experiencing more stuff after this body croaks uh but i i expect it wouldn't be a surprise so but yeah but i i don't have i don't feel that uh the veil is any different in terms of being thicker or thinner it's just that you know i i see that this this is a giant uh seeming here it's not reality and so i have this this organism has a conviction that it's been exposed to what reality is and uh but the rest of it to me is something that, there's no way I can know anything for sure about the relative cosmos. I don't think
3: that answered your question very well. But.
1: Well, it, it helps me, and perhaps this is an illustration of, of confrontation in a way. Yeah. Uh, it, help, it helps me as I'm thinking, listening to your answer, it's helping me clarify the root of my question. And I think the root of my question is actually closer to, you know, I've had, I've had the thought that aging of the human is perhaps a, a way of prepare, <clears throat> preparing the mind, the body, the soul, something, preparing it for leaving this place. Because it uh-huh. seems like the the body obviously is changing, and sometimes you know, it's literally sure. breaking yeah. down, and yeah. it's starting to
2: starting to come apart, and the mind as well. I remember one time you you told me all the dust in my house was from my body cells. Yeah. <laughs> I never heard that before. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I don't I don't complain about dust anymore because it's all from me.
3: So. Yeah it's yeah. <laughs> no one to
1: blame so, uh, so I guess a two-parter then do you, do you feel that as people age that perhaps there's an opportunity there for getting involved in a spiritual path or maybe more of an opening for something happening to them as opposed to when they were 25 because now they're 75 and it's yeah. obvious that uh, you know at least the relative truth that this mechanism is not going to be around much longer. It's very apparent.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: well, so, yes. boy, I don't know. So uh, my my experience with trying to use Meetup in order to uh, let people know about local self-inquiry group meetings, it 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 brings in some very nice people, but. Very few of them have have any interest in self-realization or knowing what they are, and I, I don't know if that's uh, just a lack of ability on my part to try to get something across, or I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, so I don't see that aging is any. I I agree that that uh, life is eroding the ego, right? So yeah just yeah how can anybody how can anybody live past you know i don't know 15 or 20 without having their ego eroded and life continues to do that but i don't see where that necessarily helps somebody focus on what the problem is and, and so yeah if their if their beliefs are getting challenged and it's it's doing the job to some extent
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think that, at least in my mind, that the aging, the truth that it may be revealing is countered by a diminishment of the energy behind the dynamic thinking that, mm-hmm. at least to some degree, seems to be a part of realization. Yeah. Well, uh, in terms of what you, I always like to touch upon this question, in terms of what you see as the blocks or obstacles to people, what, what's your current view on, on the main blocks that people are up against?
2: <laughs> I, I don't have any general response that occurs to me. It seems like the people I work with they all have their own set of views that they're holding on to for probably for a good practical reason you know probably defensive reasons or whatever but uh, you stumped me <laughs> of, of those people that you're
1: <clears throat> thinking about do yeah. the majority of do the majority of them, see the thing that they are holding on to and are unable to let go or is it unknown to them
2: well so one of the things that i every few months i get excited about trying to encourage people to make a written list of what they believe themselves to be or not to you know what they are what they aren't and uh yeah so generally uh, people will have some specific thing that they seem to be hung up on, like I'm my body. So, and and they, they can uh, hear some questions that try to shake that conviction, but, and some of them are... Uh, Spending a lot of time looking you know and trying to question their beliefs and things like that, but they, they get they get uh, a seemingly like a block where they just they can't imagine that what, what they believe isn't the truth. so and even like the idea of working with a paradigm, so Richard Rose advised using a paradigm of the view is not the viewer. And so for some people they they can it's like a what if game, isn't it that you can uh, if, if you believe in uh the logic of the excluded middle that in in this dimension, nothing can be itself and not itself at the same time so you can't be both up and down at the same time you can either be up or you can be down, but you can't be both and so the using a paradigm like the view is not the viewer can be very helpful for some people, but for other people, it just, they they have some way to try to see past that. They get maybe, so I complain a little bit about a lot of non-dual teaching, which to me is a lot of it is just trying to sell beliefs as opposed to getting people to really question and and find the truth for themselves. And so I I think, uh, um, some, some folks are really serious seekers. They get the idea that, no, uh, the view may be the viewer, you know, it's all one or whatever. And, and so they, they don't, it, it's some there's some missing intuition or logic or some combination of the two that gets them stuck in a corner and they can't, they can't seem to, you know, some, something, some uh, surprise evidence would have to question those beliefs.
1: Do you find, um, this is something that I don't think I've ever talked with you much about, but in terms of meditation, is meditation uh, a a solo confrontation exercise? Is that how you view meditation? Or is it
2: something else? (laughs) Well, so, uh, I was not a very inventive seeker, and, and so the the uh, meditation technique that Rose described in the Psychology Observer, that made more sense to me than anything other than, I'd come, than that that I'd come across. I tried a few other things, but so that was basically my meditation practice for 25 years, and what it was was just uh, reminding myself of what I was looking for and then turning my head away from anything that was running through the thought stream that didn't seem to be relevant. And I had no idea whether that was helpful or harmful or whatever, you know, what, what, what any causal relationship might have been. But I have the feeling that that sort of built a muscle so that when the final, in the final hour before my breakthrough, when, when what I saw by by looking back at what I was looking out from, I felt like I couldn't have turned my, I didn't want to, but I felt like I couldn't have turned my head away from that if I had wanted to. And so I'm suspicious that that that, that what my meditation practice was built a muscle that uh, kept my focus on the, the final evidence that broke through, that triggered a breakthrough for me. If somebody... If somebody has a, a conviction of some meditation practice that they're trying, I don't argue with it. I think Gee, that may be exactly what they need.
1: Got you. That's that's what I was curious about. If, that you had this particular practice, if you yeah. advised people do the I, same, I try or, to be
2: I try to be honest with. So uh, you know, I I tell people all the time. I think the two biggest mistakes teachers make one is assuming they they can look back their life and pick out things that uh were instrumental and other things that could just be ignored and then the second was even worse is telling somebody else well look you know this is what worked for me if you do it it'll work for you i not you know like i'm getting a message here it says upgrade new drivers downloaded you should do that <laughs> you right get now anything across <laughs> your screen <laughs> let me get rid of this if I can
1: no I'm not seeing it on this end so I don't think it's interfering with the recording
2: <laughs> other than okay. it, it other okay. than
1: distracting us
2: it's, it's take it's got half of my head and half of your head that's uh, okay
1: well I that last comment that you made um, it brings to mind your books to me because you're, from my perspective, um, the solid ground of being book, the beyond relativity in your new book, sense mm-hmm. of self. Uh, all three of those books, uh, they don't strike me as books of instruction. They yeah. strike me as more uh, sharing of your experience. But then you also wrap in the experience of a lot of different seekers in those books and is that something that you mm-hmm. did on purpose
2: yeah yeah I, so i guess it's material that interests me and i figure that you know somebody who could get something out of it would share some of the same biases or whatever you might say so i i like to uh, a lot of the book books uh the material is question and answer exchanges and to me, uh, that's, I, that's what I'm interested in. So I think that uh, hopefully would be of interest to somebody else. That they, they, so I, I also think an, another one of what, what happens sometimes in the confrontation groups is that the best questions that hit people are ones that somebody's asking somebody else. It's like, you know, like the, the defensive shield isn't up and something gets through from another angle. And so I get the same feeling about if if somebody sees a, or hears a question and answer exchange, that it may may get something through that wouldn't hit if if they were being asked it directly.
1: Yeah, I can really relate to that. <clears throat> uh, listening mm-hmm. to other people and almost feeling what they're experiencing in the moment, and that really affected me.
3: Sure. Yeah.
1: Um, that, uh, beyond, let's say, beyond confrontation, meditation practice, are there other suggestions that you would give to people about things to do?
2: Well, uh, yeah, so it, one, one of the things that needs to happen somehow is a tri, is a triangulation away from personality. And also a triangulation away from individuality, and so the idea of self versus other if if our focus is entirely on self, we're going to be respected of entirely so for years, my focus was mainly on other doing the confrontation groups and all that kind of stuff and uh, so yeah, so I, I think again, it comes down to an individual case. you almost have to see for for an individual where their focus is. And generally the pendulum swings too far in one direction. And so if a person's completely focused on themselves, then, then my recommendation would be find others to work with. And if they're lost in working with others and aren't focusing on themselves, then I'd try to get the pendulum to swing back in the other direction a little bit.
1: And, and that brings to mind the the common complaint that I hear or common observation. That I hear, and maybe it's uh, maybe it's the the set of data is contaminated by the question of well, I feel stuck.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know what to do. Yeah, and well, yeah. that's when people show up at the doors because they feel stuck and they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In, in those situations do you do you have any suggestions on how people can on their own become unstuck or is that again just a really individual thing or something that does require another person and in outside influence
2: yeah geez. so if if the stuckness is a conviction state then some like shock or trauma has to happen to Uh, exchange that conviction state for a new conviction state. So, yeah, so one of the things that would do that for me was solitary retreats. And so that's something I always encourage people to try if they haven't, or if they haven't done one recently, to do solitary retreats.
3: There there was one
2: time when I was living in Texas at the time, and at that point I was – uh, changing jobs about every year because I was doing a month solitary retreat most years and uh, <laughs> wasn't good for longevity in the jobs <laughs> and so I, I had uh, come up to the farm to do I think it was November it was cold it'd been raining the farm everything was muddy uh, the trees the deciduous trees were ugly you know and for about six months before that i at my state of mind. So generally I thought of myself as a somewhat optimistic, you know, not wildly optimistic, but you know, a little bit optimistic. And for the six months, say before that, I'd sort of been in a state of mind where things just didn't seem so so hopeful. And, uh, when I started the retreat, I fasted for the first three days. There there wasn't, of course, there wasn't any electricity or any plumbing. I was in a little cabin out in the woods and, uh, there was a small wood stove, but I didn't have any implements for cutting down trees or cutting down tree branches, and so I was picking up wet twigs from the ground, and they smolder a little bit. <laughs> so there was no heat, you know, no light, no, no 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 nothing. And on the third or fourth morning, when I went out to pee in the morning, all of a sudden the mud was beautiful, the deciduous trees were beautiful. And anything was possible. <laughs> so I thought, wow. So, th- And basically, that's the only way we see a conviction state is in contrast. When something changes, then you, you get a contrast. And so I remember talking to Mr. Rose about that afterwards. He says, yes, that's the value of fasting is it shocks the mind. You may get a change in conviction state. So solitary retreats and, and experimenting with things like fasting, to me, I encourage people to do all those, especially if they're feeling stuck.
1: Is, is there a value to uh, the more leaning towards the ascetic side on one solitary <laughs> retreat as opposed to what might be the resort side of that experience?
2: I'll tell you, with one exception, my solitary retreats are all high points of my life. The exception was when our friend Bob Sergel finally convinced me to use his cabin for a solitary retreat. Uh, his cabin had electricity. It didn't have plumbing, but it had electricity and it had comfortable furniture. And, uh, it, that retreat was, uh, nothing happened. <laughs> so yes, I'm for my, for myself, because I, I was and still am interested in comfort, you know, so that lack of com- the discomfort was extremely effective for me.
3: Hmm.
1: That, yeah, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you would, uh, at least in the, in the hypothetical, I would think, well, wouldn't I want things to be as easy as possible so I can just <laughs> relax and maybe I'll make contact with. God. maybe
2: i guess you know people people need to experiment with that don't they so for me i also found out that when i didn't take any so there, course, there wasn't any internet or anything but if i took a book that i hadn't read before that would be a nice distraction but I, after the first couple of retreats i didn't do that anymore and when i and so my initial fasting and then not having any distraction any reading or anything like that i would get super 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 bored and when i did important things would start popping up in my mind that didn't happen when i was just at home by myself even if i was doing you know like a solitary retreat if i was home by myself yeah so that combination of the discomfort from the fasting and the the letting the mind get really bored was oh my gosh what a what a difference that made for me i might I'd find myself smiling to myself, which I never did when I was by myself. And it would be like champagne bubbling in my bloodstream. It was just—it was a miracle, yeah. So yeah, so. But those are things people have to ex- experiment with themselves, don't they? You can't—you can't set up a scenario like that and expect it's going to be repl- replicatable, whatever.
3: Yeah,
1: I, I think that that's a great point. It reminds me of, of Frank Romero Wolf saying how important that individualized path was. That yeah. I think he said something along the lines of, you have to do that. You have to make mm-hmm. the practices your own. You've got to modify them. Somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, I, I mean in a way that it's obviously very different from a tradition, which would encourage Definitely, yeah. all of us to do yeah. a certain practice in a certain way, or perhaps even a certain time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and there's an appeal, there's an appeal to that tradition because it kind of takes some of the work mm-hmm. out of, oh, I got to figure this out myself. Sure.
2: Yeah. I, I also have the bias. That if somebody finds a meditation technique, that uh, they like, and then it's just going to be like a rest break, you know? Oh, so that's my, interesting. My medi- oh, yeah. My meditation was a slog. I think there were only two times in 25 years where I found myself actually meditating when I w- it wasn't my morning hour that I had reserved for sitting meditation. It was so wonderful that my sitting meditations were, they were a slog. It, it was, there was nothing pleasurable about them at all
1: well uh, let me let me ask you about that theme a little bit of slogging because that's something I'm very familiar <laughs> with and yeah, I, that, that
2: was my main strategy
1: <laughs> yeah you you and I share that quality of getting things done by slogging through them <laughs> did did you, or have you thought or have you had the experience of um, asking yourself, well, I, how do I know when it's time to change my approach? I've been slogging at this and always- I use your like advice about that.
2: Person. I use your advice, which is don't drop something that you're working on until you have something that appeals to you as more, possibly more productive. Uh yeah, and I, so I never found anything that was more seemed more appealing or more productive. <laughs> Fair
3: enough. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, okay, so we so we uh, we touched upon conversation, we touched upon meditation, we touched upon isolation, yeah, uh, spending time alone. Yeah, is there anything else that you would consider, uh, from a, from a high-level view, something that is worth experimenting with?
2: Well, I, I think Gurdjieff had some good ideas about exercises that get us out of our comfort zone. And those are something that people can play with a little bit but yeah so challenging ourselves there, there's a there's a challenge that we can do say mentally when we're meditating of trying to ask ourselves a question but i think there's there's a lot more you know a lot more latitude that that can be used for challenging ourselves i i've also heard people that, that i know or have known pretty well say that they got great value out of things like uh Oh, I'm trying to think. Byron Katie. Byron Katie exercises where she'd send them out to make fools of themselves in the local, in the local park or whatever. And so, yeah, so anything like that that provides shocks to us can be helpful. It, that reminds
1: me of, I think it was Rose who gave the suggestion that you shouldn't stay at a job longer than a year. Because she gives a, a, a right <laughs> yeah. mental right. Yeah,
3: yeah, sure. Yeah. Hmm.
2: One um. of the things that that I found is after I made a commitment to to become the truth, basically, were, were the words I borrowed from Rose or what made sense to me. I never ever had any interest in where I was going to live next, what job I was going to do next, all that stuff just took care of itself. It was amazing to me. All all those things that I used to think I had to work, you know, that all all those those secondary things just took care of themselves. And and magic would happen. Like, (laughs) uh, I'd move to a new, I'd be down to the last two nickels and I'd move to a new city and I'd see an ad in the, again, before the internet days, you know, I'd see an ad in, the, say, the Sunday paper for a job, and, and uh, I'd, I'd call and I'd talk to somebody who wasn't the person who was going to be doing the hiring. But as soon as the, the phone connection was made, I knew I had the job, you know. I mean, just things like that were happening all the time.
1: I, I know that Douglas Harding played a role in your spiritual path are his uh, exercises something that you utilize with other people Do you have to do workshops? I
2: encourage, activities? so like, it, you know, like, like at our uh, weekend or weekly retreats, mm-hmm. I encourage people to uh, provoke each other with those kinds of things. I, I don't know if I would have gotten much out of the exercises other than, so when, uh you you had recommended going to a workshop that douglas harding was going to be doing in new jersey i think it was at princeton and uh that was the year that he had he'd taken a fall and he uh the doctor told him no more transatlantic flights and so he canceled that meeting And so i didn't want i could have gone to one of his works i wanted to meet him i could have gone to one of his workshops over in europe and uh but actually, I, I didn't really want to go to one of his workshops. So I just emailed him and said, can I come over and see you? <laughs> and uh, to me, when he said yes, I thought, this is like Rose. The, the real teachers, I think, are accessible. They're not working with a million people, you know. And, uh, so, it, and so what he did for, so I actually made two trips over there. Uh, this, the second one came, I, I wasn't planning to go back so soon, but the, he and his wife were just so encouraging and uh, wanted me to, we felt like we were family, honestly, God, it was quite amazing, and uh, a couple of the guys in the Pittsburgh self-inquiry group wanted to meet Harding, and so I asked whether they could come over, and I didn't get a response, and so I figured, okay, uh, the next time, that you know, when I didn't hear back from them, I said, how about if I come over, And, and so then got a big invitation, you know, so, but uh Harding, both times when I was there on the Sunday of the week or whatever I was there, he would get some of his local students together and they'd put on a uh a workshop and I felt a little embarrassed about that that they'd do that for me and i wouldn't I wouldn't actually put myself up and go to one of the workshops <laughs> yeah so yeah, and i I think a lot of the exercises that he came up with it, it gets if a person is not in touch with their inner child whatever that is you know they're they're basically uh that that kind of a feeling level that you have to drop all your sophisticated ideas in order to to get the other side of the picture so yeah so i i was uh immensely affected by when harding did the his tube experiment with me one of those meetings that so for 24 years, I've been working in in the Rose paradigm of the view is, the the view is outside, and what I'm looking for is inside, that inside-outside paradigm. With with Harding and the tube experiment, I saw very clearly that what was in the view was inside me. And so then my mind had two opposing uh, ways of looking at the world, you could say, that I couldn't see that either one was more valid than the other. And the mind is not like that. You know, it's a, that's, that's iffy territory. Yeah. And to me, that was the great value that working with Harding uh, provided was being shaken. One of those core paradigms being shaken.
1: And the, the decision to go see him, was that a intuition for you, or was it more of a logical, or was it just a, what the heck, I might as well?
2: Well, I think it was basically because I admired you, and, and you said uh, that you had been to one of his workshops, and you thought it might be valuable for me, mm-hmm. and so... I I wasn't finding anything that I thought was very val- valuable for me so yeah so I I uh I I don't I don't think I wouldn't really say it was 100% intuitional. I think there was some combination of things you know I
1: mean I I didn't suggest that you fly transatlantic to go see No Amos. no no
2: no you suggested going to the the New Jersey <laughs> yeah, workshop That's a little different. <laughs> yeah. Well yeah 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 uh-huh
1: I was I was uh, I was trying to get a, a sense because something I've wanted to ask you about for years. I don't know if you remember, but uh, I remember that there was a period of time where you were uh, getting a lot of uh, books of art and paint, you know, paintings and so forth from the no. library yeah and and mm-hmm. really spending time with those and i didn't, I really didn 't know what you were doing because I, that uh, was very far away from from what yes. I was doing at the
2: time also uh, yeah, and also listening to music which i had I, from the time I was a kid, I liked to make noise, but I was never one into listening to other people make musical noise, and so what happened is uh I was living in Miami at the time. I'd gone to the farm Rose farm for a solitary retreat. And when I got back, I did my usual thing of writing a six page letter or whatever to Mr. Rose saying, you know, here's, here's every thought I had <laughs> during, the, during the month on the farm and here's a thousand questions <laughs> and whatever. And uh, he would always respond. Usually what he'd do is he'd ask me to number of the questions and then he'd, his response would be three. You know, and then something in nineteen and something. So he picked picked the things that weren't too annoying, I suppose. But I didn't hear back from him, so I figured all the stuff got lost in the mail. I also sent him some clippings that I knew he was interested in. And uh, when I didn't hear back from him after a couple weeks, I, I. for back, back then, I had a word processor. It was before the PCs, but a word processor. So I had a digital record of what I put together. So I printed it out and sent it again. And again, I didn't hear back from them. And when I didn't, uh, I just, I was, so I wasn't that, I hadn't seen my conviction, my intuition process at work back then. And I wasn't, I never considered myself as being very intuitional. But I got hit with a strong conviction that, well, Rose has given up on me, so everything's hopeless. And shortly after that, uh, the the last, one of the younger fellows who'd been living on the farm left the farm. And uh, I knew that, so to me, it was a a wonderful place to be able to go for solitary retreats, in addition to the TAP know, obviously. But... uh, so I called Richard Rose and I said, uh, you know, I don't have any reason I have to be here in Miami we're, we're, we're versus someplace else. How about if I come up there and we can keep the farm open for a solitary retreat? She said, sure, yeah, come on up. So for that next half a dozen years, I and you probably remember this because we were uh, friendly there at that time, and uh, I, I just, I'd lost my hope in terms of anything for myself, but I still Since uh, self-inquiry and self-realization were the primary value in my life, I figured, well, if I can do anything to help somebody else, that'll be something. And so uh, about after five or six years, I got the feeling I need to look for beauty. And that's what got me to the library. Getting the books of uh, paintings and sculpture were the two things that did it for me for some reason. So, like Rodin's sculpture would do it, and paintings by some of the—I don't know which ones—but uh, some some of the classical painters, whatever. The, usually the colorful one, like Rubens, for example, the you know beautiful, rich colors and things like that. And the other thing I did is I started listening to classical music. Bach and Beethoven, and I—I and I don't think in my life I'd ever lay down on the floor and just listen to music, and so that—that's what I was doing. That was toward the end of my my uh, spa treatment for getting getting the most value out of depression.
1: <laughs> uh, did you? Can you put a finger on something that you gained from doing that? From that explanation?
2: Well, from the, the whole depression really was, I was functional, but I was spending most of my time just sitting in a, a room in a chair, you know, and I'd look out the, the window in my little house and I'd see a hornet's nest building under the under the awning. And I think I probably ought to go do something about that. And any, any suggestion that came into my mind about doing something, the next thing that would hit my mind was, Oh, it's just too much effort. (laughs) So, but because of not, not doing much of anything, you know, uh, other than mowing at the farm and things like that, uh, my thoughts were sort of, it was almost like a sensory deprivation tank where thoughts slow down and, and you see things in more detail. So, yeah. So I, I think there was a lot of value in, also at that time i think i was getting most of my life lessons through dreams i'd started recording dreams and uh i kept a dream journal and i'd uh, make notes and so i learned how uh, to make notes at night without turning my light on i convinced myself i could see through my closed eyelids in the dark to make notes (laughs) then i'd I'd look at them in the morning of course they were just scratches But yeah, so I, I actually, uh, I think it was a valuable time. I I don't, I don't think it would have needed to last for seven years, but so I I don't, uh, what finally brought me out of it was, so I also had the, the situation where I had gotten my mother to move from New York down to Florida with me. And then I brought her back up to West Virginia. When I moved to West Virginia, she was at a point where she wasn't taking care of herself and she wasn't very uh open to having people come in and help her she she wouldn't be too cooperative with them so i felt like i had to see her every day I, I didn't so i didn't do any solitary retreats during that half a dozen years and toward the end of that period she got to the point where she had to go into a nursing home and uh when that happened then i did my first solitary retreat in six or seven years and had had um, what what i call an acceptance experience there a lot a lot of strange stuff was happening that before the retreat and that led into it that something, it was like a bigger intelligence setting things up for me. And uh, so that that broke my my depression. That's when I started going up to Pittsburgh and getting a group started up there. So yeah, so I don't discount the value of it, but I also think I probably indulged a little too much in self-pity to, could have, could have gotten over in a year or two rather than six or seven.
1: Do you think that the the time that you spent uh, looking at the sculpture and the and the paintings was that a uh, well? I'm trying to get a sense of you know did you did you feel something? Did you get some feedback from that experiment that kept pulling you forward, or was it just kind of a it well, was interesting well,
2: I think it was it was my intuition had picked up on the fact that my focus had been on you could say ugliness it wasn't really ugliness, but uh, when when I got the strong conviction to start looking for beauty, I think that that, that started infusing the mind with new data so yeah i, I don't i don't see any particular I don't remember any particular, say, insight or recalculation that happened, but I think it was, it was part of that whole process of coming out of the depression, the hopelessness.
1: So you and I both know. Because
2: yeah, in fact, oh, I was going to say before that, uh, the whole, I whenever a little glimmer of hope would would occur in my mind it was too painful I had to take I had to turn away from it and so I think that looking for beauty was also a way to get past that
1: Uh, well the the comment the comment that you just made about it was too painful to look for hope Um, yeah that that brings to mind a, a friend that we both know who I was just listening to a recording recently and he made a comment almost like that, that he, he hoped that he wouldn't experience hope because the loss of it was so painful.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. He
1: would just rather not, rather not see it.
2: Uh, Mm -hmm. And
1: and along that line then, uh, as we both know, people who have struggled with depression, in some who yeah. have succumbed to depression, yeah. Do you have any? Do you have any sense that, or any thought? I'll just say, do you have any thoughts along the lines of this idea, of, you know, Rose? I think Rose once said, "Well, when in a depressed state of mind, we may be closer to seeing the truth of things
3: than yeah. any other time,"
1: yeah. yet. Yeah. It seems to be countered by depressions, which lead to suicide or lead mm-hmm. lead to years of inaction.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. There's not there's not really a question for me in there. I'm, I'm just more mm-hmm. curious what you think about that—the value of depression versus the danger of depression. Maybe that's yeah. what I'm getting at.
2: Well, depression is obviously not something we can talk ourselves out of, is it and so and so uh, among our friends that uh, i I know have struggled with depression, uh, it has a different flavor for different people, like one of them when when he would get when he would go through the cycles of being extra depressed he his conviction was things can only get worse from here. And to me, I never, I never had that conviction. But I should, there, So to me, the conviction he had was, "Oh my God, how how would anybody survive that?" And I, I don't know what the solution would be. Honest to God, yeah. Do you?
1: You know, I, I can tell. My questions always want to run towards advice and suggestion yeah and, know. you know yeah. how can you okay what could you say that might help someone um, <laughs> Yeah. i'll go ahead and ask it anyway okay uh, in regards to depression if i find if i find myself in a depressed state should i look mm-hmm. to get out of it as soon as i can you know should i look to change that state Because, you know, if you get around other people, if you do something totally different, you know, if you give a shock earlier, you mentioned shocks to the system, break you out of these moods.
2: Yeah, sure. Something you do might provide a shock. Like even just a change of scenery might do it. Right, right. Should I
1: try to employ levers like that? Or should I maybe say, well... let me stick in this a little bit and see what kind of thoughts I have in this state.
2: No, I, I can't imagine anybody. No. I, yeah. To me, that would be like mesochistic. Mm. So yeah, I, I I would think that if, if anybody had anybody who's depressed has, you can say the inspiration to try to do something about it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, recently, uh, a friend who's had a lot of trouble with depression, uh, we had a long phone call, and he he was telling me about what he's been doing and something new he was trying. And I said, well, I'm glad to hear you're still trying things. And he started crying. So, geez, you know, it's hard to tell what is going to be helpful and what's not going to be in terms of like advice or in terms of, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you do you find, uh, as time has gone by, you've been in the role of um, what people would call a teacher or advisor or yeah. friend for some yeah. time now? Uh, mm-hmm. Have you found that you give less advice as the years go by?
2: Gosh, I, I, it's um it's, it comes down to uh, interacting with individuals. Yeah, some some individuals I still give advice to, and some I don't, or I'd, I'd be reluctant to. Yeah, and and that might be different at different times too. You know, just depending on—I don't know what combination of factors, but uh, yeah, so the, yeah. The, the down. So if somebody's in a strong position and you give them advice and it, it doesn't work, then they they they've got somebody they can let themselves off the hook with, right? Oh yeah, I tried this but it didn't work. So if they're if they're cooking it up for themselves, then they're going to have to be more honest about what's going on. I think. So that so yeah. So somebody is in a strong position. I it, generally I'd be less. Uh, likely to try to give them advice on what to do or not to do. And somebody's in a weak position, then, then I just keep my fingers crossed that I'm going to be more helpful than harmful.
1: Yeah.
3: As, as
1: you look across the landscape of spiritual practices today, spiritual teachers... Um, mm-hmm. There's a tremendous variety of things that are out there, yeah. obviously. Uh, oh, yeah. Are there, are there any, uh, teachers, uh, that catch your eye as, oh, you know, this is actually somebody who's kind of interesting and well, maybe I'd like to explore, you know, I'd, or, or you know, I'd like to have a conversation with them or they seem intriguing to me or, or does everything just look like,
3: Yes.
2: Yeah. Uh, let me see what I should say about that.
1: Well, I I'm, you know, I framed it in the positive. I didn't say who yeah, yeah. uh, uh, who looks like BS out there. I said who
2: looks intriguing to you? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, not really. I I'm intrigued by seekers as opposed to teachers. Hmm. Uh-huh. And, So if if a seeker is attracted to a particular teacher, I I figure that may be exactly what they need, you know, uh, regardless of whether I think the teacher has the goods or not.
1: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Are there any particular books that you point people to? Or is, again, is that very individualized?
2: Well, it's pretty individualized. Yeah. Yeah. So usually the books people ask me about are like Richard Rose books. And so generally the the, the two that ended up being my desert island books, the uh, Carillon, which was mainly poetry, and then the Psychology of the Observer. Uh, I, if, if I think the person uh, has the I, I, I try to get a feeling for what I think might be most helpful. So usually for Richard Rose's books, I'd advise starting with something like the direct mind experience, which is not as dense as the psychology observer, for example. But if it's somebody who's primarily uh, intellectual, I'd encourage him to take a look at Carillon because that was a side of Rose that was so different from a lot of his talks and writings and things like that but it uh, can touch very, very deeply.
1: Yeah, I was thinking... In terms of other... Go ahead.
2: No, go ahead and what we were going to say.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, I was thinking when you named psychology of the observer and Carillon, how, Mm you know, diametrically opposed in terms of the material...
3: Definitely. An intriguing
1: mm-hmm.
2: choice. Uh-huh. You know, with, with Psychology Observer, for all 25 years when I re- was reading it, I was trying to understand it, which I couldn't do. <laughs> so, and with, with Caroline, my, my mentality wasn't trying to understand it. It was trying to feel it.
1: That that reminded me of uh, sitting with Mr. Rose and looking at Caroline with him, and he, uh, I think he was looking at the essay "Tales of Love," a short story "Tales of Love" that's in Carillon Yeah, and he said something to the effect of, uh, uh, "You you don't have any idea of what this is about." <laughs> said that to me. <laughs> you don't you don't yeah. understand what this is about. <laughs> and in retrospect it, yeah, you know, the the theme of tales of love is very far from yeah. anything I was capable yeah. of intuiting or feeling at that point in time.
3: Uh-huh.
1: But, but you know, but the beauty of those books is that you can go back to them and every time you look at them yeah. you get something new. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, in in your mind, is meditation different from what Rose was talking about when he said to go within? You know, uh, critical piece of advice: of go within and employ yeah. whatever means yeah, necessary. Yeah. Is that different right. from meditation? Meditation or
2: mentation? meditation? Meditation.
1: Meditation.
2: Meditation? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. It depends on what we're talking about with meditation, right? So uh, to me, meditation is, you could say it's watching the mind. So from that standpoint, I, I think they're the same, that by watching the mind, by uh, watching what's going on in the mind, you get information that, that uh, challenges your beliefs about what you are. So in retrospect, uh, to me, that's what going within is. It's the accidents that happen when you're watching the mind and you see something that, like, with my mentality, I seem to have had to see things in slow motion. So one of my first, either the first or second solitary retreat I ever did, uh, I I was stopped in my tracks on a walk in West Virginia along a dirt road, uh, and I saw the decision-making process going in slow motion. And when I saw that, that was all the data I needed to convince myself I wasn't doing it. It was, it was going by itself, you know. And so uh, for 25 years, going within was a co-in for me. I didn't really know what Rose was talking about. But in retrospect, I think those are the kinds of accidents that, that get us inward. Is, it changes our view. By uh, just watching things, and then you see something, and it's some—it's like they're different viewing platforms that the things are being watched from. And you know. do you do you
1: distinguish between feeling and thought?
2: Well, I I use thought in a general sense. It includes pictures and words and emotions and you know every, you know the thought stream. But then, yeah, so then feelings are like a subset, I would say, of thought. So I I don't think of thought just as worded thought.
1: Okay. And I I was just trying to clarify that. So when you are talking about observing Uh, thought, you are talking about observing as well, or maybe let's say I have a feeling of joy.
2: Yes, I think the term I used was observing the mind, right, not observing thought
1: actually don't mind. know. I'd have to review the recording. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well,
1: I'll go with what you just said. It,
2: <laughs> along those terms. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so, uh, so observing the mind then is encompassing. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, it's yeah. encompassing so all, all phenomena.
3: All
2: the, yeah, yeah, and so, as you know, you you start you start seeing things besides the thought stream. You start seeing. Processes that are actually working in the mind
1: Well and, and yeah. process meaning can you explain? Yeah, that like a more? program
2: like a program that's running so wait, So the first one I saw was the decision-making process And I was watching uh, like you could say machinery. It, it wasn't very sophisticated either It was a bunch of idiots all trying to elbow their way into the spotlight the fears and desires yeah so that that was the first what I'd say is a process that I witnessed that was running in in the in the mind and then uh that first solitary retreat I did after my mother went into nursing home uh, as soon as I got into the retreat, I uh, made a list of things that i didn't didn't have any plan to do it. I just made a list of like painful memories that I had. And I watched my my mentality go into like a turbo drive mode, and I thought, "Wow, this I've never seen this before it's like it was processing a tremendous amount of information uh, that I could get bits and pieces of but way way faster and whatever than typical I saw that happen several times over a couple of years or three I don't know how many years but eventually that dawned on me, you know, that's what I think of as intuition. There's actually an intuition process or program running in the mind that is, uh, it, it basically seems to use the whole database of my life experience, everything I've read, everything I've, you know, come across in any, any form. And it goes through a horrendous amount of data trying to solve whatever problem is on its plate. And these days, I distinguish that from uh, the sixth sense, or you know what I what I call psychic stuff, which is stuff coming into the mind directly from another channel. You know, when when I saw the thought process in slow motion one time, I saw uh, wherever I was watching a stream of thought, I, there was like a Janus a two-headed <laughs> observer there they could look back and see the percept that hit the mind that started that pattern of reactions that became that thought stream. And there were two pipes or two channels where stuff was coming into, the percepts were coming into the mind. And one was all the things, the five senses. But there was another channel that I didn't know what it was. so that's what I assume people, when people say six sense, that's what they're talking about. And to me, there, there are some material that hits the mind just out of nowhere that comes in on that sixth, on, on that second pipe or that, that other channel. And then there's the, the mental process of intuition, which is seemingly much more sophisticated than the decision-making process. It's not an emotional process. It processes emotions and thoughts and everything, but it's not emotional. the base. Uh, Rose referred to it as refined feeling. And to me, that's so sometimes i've uh some a conviction has hit the mind, which uh I didn't see the background processing going, so I didn't know whether it was coming in from this other channel or whether it was coming out of the intuition program that was running in the mind and other times i i you know would would spot intuition at work and and uh watch it until it came up with a conclusion which would be very quiet it wasn't wasn't making a lot of noise, you know.
1: And those are, everything that you just described would be a process, what you would call processes in the mind.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah.
3: And,
2: it's like, it's uh, like watching machinery running, you know, like, like working with a computer where you're, you've got a program running. Yeah. And, and it, you know,
1: this is a favorite topic of mine when we started talking about going within, uh, uh-huh. and I'm sure that you talked about this before, but uh, you, I'm assuming that you've got to the point of having some sense of I am watching this.
2: Well, exactly. to me, the, the, yeah, that, that sense was uh, very uh, annoying because it was sitting on the fence between being a subject and an object. So it was like, that, that's me. I'm what's looking at the computer. But as soon as I, I recognize it, then it becomes an object in my consciousness. So I could never, I could never, you know, the sense of self was annoying as hell because it wouldn't, I couldn't, couldn't get my arms around it. So it was the it was subjective in terms of it's it's close as I could see to what was me, but then I couldn't see anything about it so I think like Harding's uh exercises basically what he's doing is you say you look back at what you're looking out from and you don't see anything right well isn't it a big open space isn't it you know this isn't it that so it's like he's uh No, I can't think of the right word for it, but it's like it, it's like a hypnotic suggestion. Yeah. So to me, when I was looking for for years, when I would look back at what I was looking out from, and I didn't see anything, um, I, I thought, well, that makes if there's no no movement, no noise, it's, it's representing death, and so I don't want to go back there. It was like a revolving door. You could say it's like, you know, you're you're in a revolving door. You can go in to the Department store, or you can go back out on the street, and so it, the department store is the familiar territory of the mind, and out on the if you went back out, that, that's nowhere. It's you know, there's nothing there. So I think that's to me that's why it, it you can't <laughs> the, you, the mind self can't just take a stroll back. There, that something has to occur, and what happened, occurred for me in the final solitary retreat I had was I became conscious of awareness, and and that provided that provided the the data that brought the keystone of my arch and beliefs about what I was into conflict,
1: and the the trying to give people a feel maybe of yeah. what, what is the, what were you pursuing or what were you after? Or what was your sense of, I want to go do a retreat. What led you to that retreat that led to this revelation? Yeah.
2: Well, so uh, I, I had reserved a cabin, at the listening point uh retreat center which is a franciscan monastery on Lake Erie in Pennsylvania. And uh it, they were all booked up so i in in like January I uh I registered or whatever you call it, you know, reserved reserved a cabin for a week in May. And that February I was over seeing Harding for the second visit. And on the trip back from Harding's the mood descended on me that I want to get more serious than I've ever been in my life before. I, I don't know who to blame for that mood, but I assume it had something to do with being around Harding. And I remember crossing my mental fingers saying, I hope this this mood stays around for May for when I'm on my solitary retreat. And it did. But in retrospect, I think that's the stupidest Decision I ever made in my life to postpone doing something for three months. You know, when that mood <laughs> descended, <laughs> yeah. And so, in, in that in that uh, final solitary retreat for the uh, two or three days, the the word open sesame would hit my my consciousness, come into my consciousness. And whenever that did, I found myself looking back at what I was looking out from. I wasn't trying to do it. It was just something that was going on, you know, which always uh, amazed me and impressed me because not much seemed to happen that way. Most of it seemed to be all struggle, you know.
1: So it it sounds then uh, uh, like there wasn't, you didn't go into the retreat with something, uh, an idea in mind of, you know, I really want to look at X. It was more...
3: no uh -uh.
1: i want to get serious and serious feels like going into the retreat will allow that to happen yeah and and what happened in the retreat itself it sounds more like those were intuitions that were coming to you and you were following those intuitions is that correct
2: well uh, so so af, after three days of fasting, I, for the next two or three days, I, there was a, I'd taken a Harding book along with me. It was the little book of life and death, and I think it was like in the introduction or the prologue or something like that. There was a series of tests for immortality, and for two or three days I went through those. And what, what I was doing is I was well, I'd read as much of a sentence is, you know, some some little piece of a sentence. I say, now, can I see this for myself? So I I was actually checking my intuition, what what I could see intuitively and I wouldn't go past a point where I, I couldn't see it for myself. In, In retrospect, I figured that's when I became my own authority. I don't think I'd ever done that before. And so I did that for two or three days. And then uh, I was at the end of the retreat. It was a Sunday and I'd, I was right across the road from Lake Erie and I had wanted to see the sun setting on Lake Erie, but I decided to wait, and keep it for the last night. And so that last, last evening of the retreat, I went over to watch the sunset on the lake and I went back to the cabin I was staying in I sat in the chair and uh, I realized for maybe the second or third time in my life, I was just sitting doing nothing. I always felt I had to keep busy, my mind busy. <laughs> so I was just sitting doing nothing, which was wonderful, and uh, and that's when things started happening. So also, I've come to the conclusion that that combination of effort followed by relaxation can be
3: very, very magical or productive.
1: yeah that that reminds me about my joke earlier about the the uh the retreat at the resort you know the resort retreat versus set <laughs> retreat yeah yeah well art do you have uh do you have plans for the for the next uh fifteen years when we do you know we'll do another <laughs> interview fifteen years from now do you have any plans for the uh the next fifteen years or is it kinda do you see yourself continuing to do what, what you're doing
3: now? Uh yeah, I don't
2: I don't see myself uh, doing anything other than what I'm doing now. It may may develop, I don't know. Yeah. But I I'm not really planning to stick around for another fifteen
3: years. I think that's asking a lot of me. <laughs>
1: You know, Harding, Harding stayed around, and, and yeah, oh my and, God, he
3: did, yeah, yeah, he was, was a trooper, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, fiery until um, until the end, as far as I know.
3: I know so, he was. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, uh, I just wanted to, you know, remind people again that we've got three books out now solid ground of being beyond relativity and sense itself which they can pick up at amazon or order through their local bookstores uh if people want to reach you are you well are you open to random people contacting you do you respond to that kind of thing or not have not I, I,
2: I respond to email i i discourage phone calls unless people are really hurting you know what i mean and uh i suppose i'm going to be doing more zoom stuff but I, I i don't see doing it individually so for for uh virtual meetings that kind of thing maybe but yeah so i'm open somebody wants to email me
1: and selfdiscoveryportal.com uh, did i get that right yes. That's your website and your email yes. your your contact yeah. info's there
3: yes it is yeah all right. Great. great. Or they can always call you and ask. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, I guess you, uh, well, I, I tend to kind of hide my contact info a little bit.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> you have to, you have to dig around a little bit to find how to reach me. I think that's, uh that's it. Art. if there's any, any final thoughts that you have before we sign off?
2: Uh, I encourage people to keep slogging, keep,
3: doing what they're doing or
2: keep uh, looking for new things, different things to do. But the, the longing that we have, the yearning or the longing that we have is, is trying to get a message through to us. And the more we're conscious, more, the more we feel that longing, the more our, our body and mind will react to it and, and uh, do, try to do something to satisfy it.
1: Thank you, Art.
3: Thank you, Sean.
1: Thank you for listening to this
0: edition of Journals of Spiritual Discovery. I'm your host, Sean Nevins. For more information about today's guest, as well as more interviews, books, and other resources, go to spiritualteachers.org. That's spiritualteachers.org.